going on everybody 360 digital closing bell here i am your humble correspondent michael tanner joined for you live from an undisclosed location here in denver here on this beautiful sunday april um the 5th if you're listening to this you're definitely going to be hearing this on the morning of the 6th this should drop at about midnight tonight uh, as always i'm joined from live from dallas by my counterpart executive producer and of the show and the publisher and director of oil and gas 360.com Stu turley how you doing man i'm doing fantastic hey thanks for letting me be on your show of course. No, I'm excited. We have a really great show lined up for you again. I know I always say that, but it is true. I'm going to do a quick like five-minute rant on hedging because it's kind of become a big topic this week. We're going to go ahead and check in at the week at oil. OPEC meeting got canceled. Should be a spicy week for oil, especially in the beginning. We'll check in with EFT Twitter. Obviously, we'll check the oil levels, check in with the commitment of traders. Uh, we have an interesting swing trade company to watch by our newest anonymous tipster. We'll get into that. We'll give Nick and Steven a call for an iTunes exclusive look at what's going on in the world of midstream. And then Nick is going to talk to us a little more about hedging. I've got a little more in-depth questions I want to ask him, but I want to get that rant done out of the way. But first, as always, we need to get some clerical work done. Please, if you're not subscribed to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Twitter, um, at Entercom, please stop what you're doing. Pause this episode, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever makes those algorithms go nuts. We really appreciate your support. I promise you, you, show, you send me a picture of you giving us a review. We will send you some merch. We have these t-shirts that say, do these rigs make my assets look big? I promise you, you send me a, a picture of you giving a five-star review. I will send you some merch person. We'll sh I'll ship it from my house because it's quarantine. I will ship this from my house. Um, we really appreciate all the support. You can also follow everybody on LinkedIn, Stuart Turley, Michael Tanner. You can follow Entercom, Oil and Gas 360. We have a really great set of interviews that just came out. Stu just released one with EnergyNet and Quorum Data, which I don't want to speak too soon, but Stu, those were excellent interviews. Thank you very much. I uh, had a lot of great feedback on uh, the interviews as well as your uh, news and episodes last week. Great feedback. Well, good. That's what we want to hear. And, and, and there was a previous one with Rare Petro. Please check them all out. You can check them at www.oilandgas360.com on their Energy 360 network. All right. So for, for just this first segment, um, before we get into the week of oil and give Nick and Steven a call, I just want to give, I need to do a little hedging rant. I need to get this off my chest. I, I've been reading too many articles and I've been seeing too much stuff on, on both on Twitter and on LinkedIn regarding hedging and, and, and how that's playing into what's going on right now. And, you know, so I just want to start by giving a quick overview of, you know, if, if for those of you listening, if you don't know what hedging is, hedging is a way for companies who work in industries that are, that they're, Main source of revenue is based upon a commodity. Think about anything. It's not just oil and gas companies. It could be mining companies. There are petroleum refiners. There are on the East Coast, people get their energy via propane. And so there are companies that do hedging for propane companies that talk about, that allow propane companies who basically sell energy to these East Coast people to lock in their prices. So there's, it's not just specifically an oil and gas technique, though that's what I, I you know, I, I think it's become a huge issue within the oil and gas field. And I just want to chat about it. So first off, like I mentioned, hedging overview or hedging allows you to come to a fixed cost on your production, whatever you produce, whatever commodity you produce, allows you to lock in a guaranteed price 
for that in exchange for giving up some sort giving up exposure to the market because exposure to the market can either help you or hurt you the price of your commodity can go up or down regardless of what's going of what's going on it can always go a little lower it can probably always go a little higher especially now that we're dealing with futures but when we talk about hedging the idea is when you look at it it's i'm going to lock in a certain amount of my production at a certain price giving up the ability to make more money, but also guaranteeing that I'm not going to lose money. And so this is exactly akin to insurance. Think about when you buy health insurance. You know, I haven't been, I haven't seen a doctor in a year and a half, but I'm paying for insurance. Why? Because I'm giving up cash now, knowing that sometime in the future, I'm probably going to need to go to the doctor and it's going to be a large expense. So I would rather pay for some insurance over the long term in order to secure myself that I'm not going to go into medical debt if I walk outside tomorrow and get smoked by a car, which is generally, which, which is partly why. And it's the same reason. It's, I think of it, you know, if, when you think of hedging, think of insurance, because what, what I've been seeing happening in, 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 in some of these articles, and it's not everybody, there's some, there's some really good, there's some really good information out there on, on, on hedging the right way, but hedging is insurance. And there are too many articles I've seen that have mentioned companies and how to make money off hedging. I'm sorry. If you are going into buying insurance, attempting to make money, you're, I think you're just doing it backwards. You know, in an ideal situation, you should lose money on all of your hedges it, because that means your price of your commodity is going up. You should, I, you know, when you enter, you know, how a hedge, how, how the mechanics of a hedge work for an operator is you agree upon a price with your counterparty aka me, Sandstone Capital Group. And we say, okay, cool. If it's above this price, we're going to pay you. If it's below this price, you pay me. Now, if you're paying me, that should be a small fraction of what the increase in the commodity price has done for your bottom line. But in an ideal situation, you should be cutting your counterparty a check every single quarter because that's just what it should be, because that means your price of your commodities is going up. Now, that's not always how it happens, and that's why you hedge in order to lock in a specific price. But when I, when I see an article that, that says, you know, this hedging strategy is going to take this company to the next level, I almost, I throw up in my mouth a little bit because a hedging strategy does not make a company. A hedging strategy can save a company because it can force, it can, it can, you know, make them less adverse to a huge drop in the price of oil. But a hedge strategy never makes a company. We, we talk about this in our, in our companies to watch every week. And, and Stu, I, I know you know what it is. It's good management makes great companies. It's not a great hedging strategy. Now, a great hedging strategy, like I mentioned, can save a company. It can save a company from a disastrous price, you know, and, 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 and I really want to chat. Or I, I want to ask Nick about three-way callers because that's a disastrous move that don't, won't save a company. But you can save a company slightly via hedging, but good management makes good companies. It's, it's, and so the, the, the next article that I see, I'm not going to call these articles out by name because I'm being nice. But if I see another one this week, I'm gonna, I promise you I'll come back next week and we're, we're going to we're, we're going to actually send people, we're going to push people to the link because it's, I, I'm getting tired of it. Have you been seeing these stews or just me? No, yeah, it, it is me too. So it comes across the news desk. I feel you. But yeah, so, you know, my, you know, so to, to wrap this all up in, in, in a ponytail, good management makes good companies, not necessarily a great hedging strategy, though it can save you. And the mechanics of how you go about a hedge are all dependent on what you're looking for. And Hedging is insurance. And if you're looking to make money off buying insurance, 
I, I just don't really think it's going to end well for you. So did you like my medical analogy? Was I spot on there? Uh, absolutely. Uh, very good. How come you haven't gone to the doctor in uh, a year, dude? I just, I mean, I, I mean, I necessarily, I, I've been for like a, a yearly checkup, but like I haven't necessarily gotten sick to the point where I've had to cash in my insurance, much as like if the price of oil drops and you have to cash in your hedging insurance. So, I mean, I pay for insurance mostly because I run and I am, you don't know how many times I've cr almost crossed the road and been smoked by a car. And I don't need to like, I, I don't need to go into medical debt the rest of my life because I crossed the, I accidentally jaywalked and got myself smoked by a car. So that's mainly why I buy, that's mainly why I have insurance um, for the catastrophic stuff. And that's how you should look at hedging. So that the, the, a catastrophic collapse in the price of oil and you will not have to bankrupt your company. But if you go into it thinking you're going to make money or, hey, we're going to design a company around having the most effective head strategy, man, you've lost before you even showed up to the game. And I do, con you know, I do hedging and, and advisory around this. Call me up. I'll, you know, you can, I'll, you know, you can. I charge a lot per hour to just tell you, yeah, let's, let's focus on some maybe other parts of your business before we get to a complex. So, but feel free to call me up 949-561-1818. I'll take your calls all day. <laughs> ah, well, that felt good. I needed to get that off my chest. So um, I needed to get that off my chest. You don't even have to go run today. I mean, you, now that you got that off, there's no steam. Michael. Yeah, I'll still have to get a run in for sure. I've had, I've had a decent amount of cup of coffee. Um, but I think we're going to dive into the week of oil trading. And this week, as I just meant, and this episode, and this segment, excuse me, as always, is sponsored by Sandstone Capital Group. These guys do insanely great research. All levels and uh, all these levels I'm about to give you is included in their Energy Glimpse solution. You know, uh, rumor has it they're actually contemplating launching an energy market newsletter here shortly. It's just a rumor, though. So I'll keep you updated on the status of that. Um, if you are interested in chatting with these guys, they're awesome guys. I highly recommend it. You can give Connor, Connor McCall an email. It's Connor at sandstonecg.com um, or give their corporate line a call and you can just check them out at sandstonecg.com. All right. So this week in oil ahead, you know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, some stories. First off, you know, Friday, obviously oil runs from $23 to $29 and it ends, you know, 29 even, even though that futures is probably going to drop to about 28, 34 when the market opens. And that's because the OPEC meeting that was scheduled has now been delayed. It has not been canceled, but it's been delayed. And this is when, you know, for the day traders listening, this is why we always talk about buy the rumor, sell the news. Buy the rumor. You should be buying oil on Fridays and you should be selling the moment the market opens because that's generally how it works. 99% of the time, the news or the rumor does not add up to what the actual news is. And so, you know, I'm looking for oil based off this to tumble just a little bit this, you know, at least Monday. I mean, obviously I can't predict a Trump tweet. So let's be, you know, who knows what, what Trump's going to tweet Monday morning, but assuming that account's inactive or he's busy doing some other stuff, my guess is oil falls a little bit. Um, and that's partly because they're talking about, you know, possible OPEC tariffs. And this is the part that now it gets interesting. And this is where, you know, on its face, it sounds good hey, let's put an import tax on OPEC oil. And on its face, it sounds good. But if for those of you who aren't, you know, on Twitter, I, I first off, I recommend doing it because I think it's, it's, it's actually, if you use it correctly, it's a great source of real-time news. It's almost the best aggregator 
of real-time news. And, it, you know, for the hardcore data scientists out there, Twitter gives away about seven days. It's like seven to 10 days of free tweets via an API. And, you, you know, I, you know, you know, Sandstone Capital Group is, is, is pulling that API and doing some stuff with it. And it's not, you know, not that it's easy um, per se, but it's not as difficult as you would think to go and document these tweets and be able to search via hashtags. And there are certain, you know, hashtags, but, and, and, and one of them I'd recommend following is EFT or energy finance Twitter. Most people use that to tag, you know, to, to, to tag, you know, tweets and, you know, people are more familiar, like, all right, get on with it. Give it a hashtag is. So, all right, you guys give it a hashtag is. That is the one to use. And Dan Pickering, he's the CEO or founder and CIO, excuse me, of Pickering Energy Partners, which is another good, really good energy research consulting firm. He tweeted out three really good things last night that I think kind of put into perspective this oil tariff idea that was going to be pushed around um, from President Trump. And one was, all right, EFT needs some help. I'm trying to think through how a potential U.S. oil tariff would play out. Trump tariff, Saudi, Russia, OPEC oil. Then what? Refiners must scramble for other crude grades. Big game of duck, duck, goose with crude barrels. Does anything change? Next tweet. So do they make WI Brent spread, do some funky moves? Probably chaos for refiners. Would they be imposed along with some import restrictions? U.S. storage fields faster or slower? Trying to think through the permutations. Appreciate the help. And then this is the next tweet he does, which I think is the moneymaker right here. If imposed, assume OPEC Russia crude coming in gets taxed, raising price. But buyers don't just import... But don't, but don't buyers just import cheaper barrels from somewhere else? Ding, ding, ding. Does U.S. crude producers really benefit? If U.S. refiners have to buy only U.S. Canadian crude, where do the rest of the barrels come from? Ding, ding, ding. It's that last sentence. If U.S. refiners have to only buy U.S. Canada crude, where do the rest of the barrels come from? Because, you know, and, 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 and this is something, you know, I'm going to bring Stu in because there's actually a really great tie into an interview we did. But first, I, I, I will link to the EIA production numbers for this week in petroleum. We per, U.S. crude production as of 327, 2020, four-week average, 13 million barrels a day. Crude imports, 6.2 million barrels per day. It, we, we, you, what, what's consumption? I, I, I should pull up the EIA. I don't have the EIA numbers up right now, but consumption has got to be in the 20s. I think 20 is about what it is. Pickering, it is, yeah. Dan's right. Where, where are the barrels coming from, Stu? Yeah, no idea. Well, uh, the barrels are uh, coming in also from Russia big time. Mm -hmm. And so when you start looking at uh, how they're being uh, pulled in, I had re just recently had the quorum uh, interview with uh, uh, Olivier and uh, he is with quorum software. We talked about an interesting solution that fits right on into uh, Dan Pickering and uh, kind of a almost have joking way, I think that he had a great idea. Uh, instead of looking at just Canada for the heavy, bring in Mexico. We've already got um, trade agreements with both North uh, and uh, Canada and Mexico. But if we formed the North American exporting countries, uh, Olivier came up with NAPAC, North American Petroleum Export Countries, that would really help put the pressure on Russia. Because now Russia has really crappy oil. We are the only ones that can refine the Russia oil. Do you know the kind of hurt that would put on them? Right now, Novatec mm -hmm. is up $34 in pre-market. And they're uh, a 
987 stock. They're the largest LNG producer in Russia. Big, big issue. Yeah, no, that's some great numbers. And I, 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 I tend to agree with you and Dan and Dan Pickering on this issue. I, I don't know if this will work. You either have to do a flat, you know, import tax on any oil that comes in. Just, just doing OPEC or Saudi and Russian oil does not solve the issue. But this NAPEC idea, we need to get like hats. We need to get some merch with NAPEC written up. Let's get some t-shirts that say NAPEC and start selling them. No, I'm dead serious. If you want one, email me, mtanner at entercominc.com. We'll get some NAPEC shirts fired up. Oh, uh, you got to give hats off to Olivia. Oh, yeah. Sponsored by Quorum Data. We'll get their logo on there for sure. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. We're going to get these distributed. So if you want one, please email me, mtannerentercominc.com. We will get these shirts made. And, and Dan Genovese was also on that uh, interview as well, too. Oh, so. okay. Well, good. Yep. All Look right. Everybody. So, you know, that's, that, that's kind of the stories. You know, if, you know, I, where, where do the barrels go if this import tax or if this, you know, Saudi-Russia thing does happen, you know, and, 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 and this OPEC meeting get pushed, I think crude's going to be depressed. And, and that's why, you know, when we get into the levels for the week, 29 was what the market closed at. I don't see it getting above. I don't see it going higher Monday at least. Um, I definitely think, depending on some of the news that drops this week, it could get up there. But really, I see you know support wise, twenty eight twenty eight is the first level. That's you know kind of where the 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 first crest happened when you talk about um, for that you know that second spike on some of that news that hit Friday. The next level of support purely based on volume twenty six sixty nine. Um, that's sort of that next level in terms of a volume chunk down on the downside. You know, in terms of a floor, depending on what the news comes out, I mean, we could be all the way back down to 2355, which was that top we had before, the, you know, the beginning of the week. You know, I'm not saying we're going to be down five bucks next week, but you never know. This is a, you know, we're talking about futures contracts here. So this is a rumor driven business. So really just, it, it depends on what happens. If, if, if OPEC does what they continue to think we're going to do and, you know, even if they delay, but they come to some sort of production agreement, that's going to help. Now, you know, the, the, the other thing that we've, we've stopped talking about because it, I feel like we're just beating a dead horse is this virus. I mean, that's still impacting um, the demand for oil by 20 million barrels. So baked into this equation always is that the, the coronavirus outlook. So, you know, yes, we could, if we cut 4 million barrels a day, that's great. That's probably going to get oil to 35 bucks. But, you know, this virus is really, you know, it's especially, you know, on top of just the devastating effects it's had it on the economy and what it's going to be like if we shut down, have to shut down. I mean, we're already, I think everywhere is pretty much self-quarantined till end of April, right? I mean, yep. Uh, but also you've got the glut sitting on the ocean. Yep. Uh, you're not going to just turn that spigot right on as far as being able to have a reduction in production because you still got to go through everything sitting on the ocean first. Well, and, and I think this is the other thing that people don't realize is we, we haven't built any new refineries. There's no, there's no, our refining capacity is the exact same as it was before this started. And now we have how many barrels sitting on, oh man, these refineries, I mean, they, they're actually going to be making out well, especially if they can purchase this crude cheap. If they yep. can figure out a way to store it themselves, Oh, you know that, you know that, and that's where, and that's where these refiners are, are looking to. But yes, we, the, no refinery. We've made, made zero new refineries. So, 
it's it's going to be a long time before I think we see this demand and supply balance out. But hey, we'll take OPEC and let's get some NAPEC in there. I like it. Let's Isn't that get great? Some, I love it. No, I really like it. Um, on the upside for oil, you know, if you're if you're if you're an insane bull, um, which we love bulls on the show, um, really, you know, next big volume chunk thirty four dollars. Um, you know, uh, anything higher than that's just sort of a speculation. Um, on that point, you know, really, cause you know, really 35 was the gap down from 47 when, or from, you know, 42 when the market, you know, when we heard the OPEC news, it went from 42 down to, you know, 27. So anything above 34, which was the top of this two weeks ever since March and this OPEC stuff, you know, anything above, there's a guess. I mean, if you're looking at a three-month chart right now, there is zero volume between 36 and 41. So, I mean, there's your tops. I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit there and predict from a day trading level where I think it's going to go. You know, perma bulls, I, you know, 32 to 34, that's probably your target zone. Um, but I don't expect that to happen Monday. So I would be selling Monday. And again, we don't give investment advice, but if you're, if you're trading, and, and specifically, if you look at order flow, I would be selling Monday at the open. Um, check in with our commitment of traders. Just to remember, our commitment of traders um, this week runs the Friday, um, the, th uh, give me this, it's the uh, 27th through the 3rd. Or excuse me, no, 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 my bad, my bad. This is the um, 23rd through the 30th. So we're about a week delayed, but if you think about that time frame, that just gives you an idea of what this... Um, what the time frame looks like. Producers, merchants, and uh, producers. So these are companies hedging. Added fifty-one thousand contracts to the long, but they shorted about seventy-four thousand contracts. So very odd to see both long and short contracts up, and that brings your producers and merchants to about a fifty-fifty balance between uh, their long and shorts. About five hundred and forty thousand contracts um, on the long side to about five hundred and sixty-two on the short side. When we look at hedge funds, um, they're adding to their oil positions. I mean, they've already, they've been long on oil for month, for, you know, over a year now waiting for this thing to get up back to a hundred. Um, but we're starting to see that spread between long and short come in about 23,000 contracts, um, 23,000 contracts added on the long side to about 22,000 on the short side. And we're looking at about 266,000 on the long side to a hundred thousand on the short side to give you that breakdown. Um, swaps became really, you know, swaps, um, a lot more swaps are happening right now. Usually the swap short side is much, much, much heavier than the long side. And you generally see more short swaps get added than longs. But today was one of the first weeks, I think last week as well. You can actually go check this all out at uh, cotlegacy.com. They make, they make this, this is the chart I pulled, some open source software. So you can shout out to those guys. Um, I'm pretty sure last week or two weeks ago was the first week we had the swap dealers come out and be more on the long side than the short side. And that's just obviously because of this collapse in price. So it'll be interesting to see how long that takes place and see how long that takes place. And this is going to roll into our segment three and or our company to watch by our newest, newest, and we really appreciate all of our anonymous tipsters, but this one, this guy's been giving us great tips for multiple weeks. He's a big fan of the show. And so we're, we're, we gave him a call sign Tomcat and he, he, he reached out to Stu and gave us, he gave us more, a company to watch on the swing trade side and I'm all for it. So this week's company to watch is, is it's just more of a swing trade, but uh, Stu, I'm going to give it over. What, what's Tomcat got for us? Uh, Tomcat. Now that's his uh, call sign out of the military. So uh, uh, hats off to all of our military folks. We absolutely yes. love them. Uh, 
Um, he's uh, first time in 28 days. The charts are showing a buy side on Fang, one of your favorite uh, uh, there for Diamondback. So Diamondback is absolutely uh, looking kind of about ready to uh, start rolling there. Uh, the other one was Magellan Midstream. Uh, the fundamentals are looking really, really good. It's got a 4.57 on a one to five. 30 days ago, it was a four. Uh, their EBITDA is uh, 3.48 and the RSI is 43.44. Uh, not bad on those two right there. Yeah, and Stephen, you know, not to cheat, we're about to call, we'll call Stephen here at the end, but he, he sent me a nice little overview document um, on Friday of some things to watch. Magellan Midstream Partners, their CEO came out and said that this um, contango environment is going to be an expected uplift about seven to 10 million on their bottom nice. line. So, I mean, you definitely reflected in those numbers and the fundamentals. And, you know, what, I love Diamondback. First off, the account is, you know, this is a $100 stock that is low because of oil. So if you're, you know, this company's not going anywhere and it's, you know, trading now at 31.52 or 59, excuse me, was the market close. When you look at the technicals, Tomcat is specific, is right. The moving averages have flipped. Um, it flipped early Thursday, you know, moving averages from five all the way to 20 give us buys. When you get into the 30 and 30 through the 200s, they'll give you sells, but we're not institutional traders. So to give you an idea, one of the, if you want to, you want to, if you want to know how most hedge funds operate, they take a look at a chart, they throw a 25 or a 50 day moving average, and they throw on a 200 day moving average. And when those intersect each other, as in the 200 day moving average intersects with the 25, they purchase. And when the, and when, when, and when they, they recross, they buy and sell. And you can look at a chart, and if, I, I really highly recommend going on an S&P 500 chart, doing about a four-year, uh, you know, do a, do a five-year time frame and throw on a 200 and a 50-day moving average, and you can really mark out buy symbols. And so anything above 20 to 30-day moving averages is you're looking at an institutional long-term trade. So I love the fact that Tomcat's coming and talking about our, our smaller range and our moving average because that's what affects guys like us who day trade. You know, on the Magellan midstream side, we're definitely going to have to talk to Steven about that because I know he's going to have some thoughts on that. Um, but I do love the EBITDA being 3.48, RSI being 43. That's, you know, in this environment, that's strong. And I, you know, you know, there were people probably buying, you know, there were probably people a little earlier on that um, than we are. So it'll be definitely be something to watch there. Diamondback resources. If I had to give a recommend, you know, I had to give a one way or the other. Yeah. It'll be very interesting. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to go ahead and agree with Tomcat on this one. I think, I think I will we'll yeah. put this cause this is, you know, cause I, agree with me. So this is one of the 10 companies that is going to, you know, is going to have a decent balance sheet when, when we come out of this. Yeah, you bet. It's kind of also nice that uh, Tomcat is given a uh, reference also with our next guest. So, you know, having uh, validation from two different sources, not bad. Definitely, Tomcat. Please keep sending us your picks. And if anyone has any companies that we should be looking out for here on this podcast, please reach out to me, Michael Tanner or Stuart Turley on LinkedIn. And we're going to go ahead and kick it over to Nick. We've got him on the line here. Remember, guys, Nick Barry is our energy finance guru. He kind of takes it from a more corporate approach. And I love getting his take. And I know he's got some thoughts on hedging. So Nick, I just really want to first quick ask you, give me your overview of hedging. What, what do you think? You heard my rant. What, 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 give me your thoughts and opinions on what you think hedging can do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks again for having me on the show, Mike. Uh, now is obviously a very interesting time. Very, very volatile volatile um, commodity price environment that we're in. 
seeing big market moves um, regarding Trump tweets or um, OPEC that that's really affecting things um, in very large directions every day. Um, my view on hedging has always been for these ENP companies, it is a great um, insurance policy. And I think that is mainly how it should be used um, to ensure to be able to forecast out a predictable cash flow, um, especially useful when pursuing new acquisitions to kind of eliminate con commodity pricing risk. Um, but with that being said, I think you don't want to overuse your insurance policy because at the end of the day, the guys that make money on insurance are the ones that are selling insurance, or in this case, selling the hedges. And so you see operators that can can get burned. Um, one thing that's popular right now is the uh, three-way collar, which you've you've talked about. But um, some operators still kind of do this, where it's a strategy where you're, you're you're locking in your your price by buying buying a floor and and selling a ceiling to lock in your call. But what you're also doing is selling the subfloor is what it's called. So what, what what's happening is if the price drops uh, very significantly, then um, you get into a position where you're not you're not in a um, good good financial position with with your with your hedge strategy. Um, so that's kind of my take. Is is you think hedging can be very good to for predictable cash flow for pursuing new acquisitions. But again, you want to view it as an insurance policy and focus on your profitable product, which would be um, getting oil and gas out of the ground. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point that I, I didn't spend that, you know, I, 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 I spent the majority of my time talking really about, you know, if you're making money on your hedges, if you go into the idea that you're going to hedge with the idea that you're going to make money, it's just, it's just wrong. You're already going into the, the, the idea with the wrong idea. So when you talk about, and I love the fact that you brought up these three-way callers because I mentioned them slightly, but really the key is it ends up being a naked hedge for you. I mean, that's just what scares me is the fact mm. that you're going to go, you know, the idea of I enjoy, I enjoy the two-way caller or, or the costless is what they say. And I mean, no one can see me, but I've got quotes because costless, yeah, rarely, but yeah. it can be achieved. But the idea is, so then if you're going to add on a subfloor to that, well, it, to me, it just it just acts almost as like a naked hedge, and that's just what scares me. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's it's uh, and I think I can see where people come from, right? It's like, okay, you know, how 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 low can oil really go? And um, oh, <laughs> I think just the watch. market has been has been pretty surprised. And I think at the end of the day, it, it comes down to that. Yeah, you should if you are in the business of producing oil and gas, you're not directly in the business of trying to predict commodity prices. So in my opinion, um, you can focus on your bottom line of, and, and of producing oil and gas, and then, you know, have insurance for the risk of commodity pricing. Yeah, I agree. And, and I walked through Diamondback earlier in the podcast of kind of, you know, cause they do a really good job on an oil and gas 360 mm -hmm. uh, of walking through the actual positions are there any companies that you give a good example for you that kind of either show is something that's happened, you know, good or bad for coming to hedging or that you're seeing right now that's playing out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Diamondback is um, interesting, as you mentioned, and with such a great acreage position too, I think you can definitely take advantage of hedging because um, again, you, if you know, if you can predict your cash flow and you have very predictable well results, 
from strong acreage, I mean, you can be very successful. Um, an interesting one is, yeah, the, the three-way callers. Um, I think guys like Parsley and Oxy have, have a lot of those positions right now. So that'll be interesting how that that plays out. Um, you know, back back in the day, a company, Lynn Energy, that uh, filed for bankruptcy, they, they had a kind of interesting, kind of aggressive hedging strategy um, where they were pursuing a lot of acquisitions very aggressively. And it was just really bad timing in the market. You know, they, they kind of bought things when the, when the market was looking strong. And then in, in 2016, when things kind of tanked, they were not in a good spot because they just acquired all these new shiny assets. But um, their strategy for hedging was pretty interesting. They used it pretty aggressively to pursue these new acquisitions because, again, they viewed it as, you know, if we can, if we can eliminate that risk of commodities, and then forecast out our cash flows from these new acquisitions. That was their uh, profitable business strategy. But again, as far as even even that position was was probably too much too aggressive into the looking into the insurance policy rather than valuing your your bottom line as growing a profitable business. I agree, and you know. Matt Gallagher, president and CEO of uh, Parsley. He's a minds guy. He should know better. No three-way callers. Where you got to? <laughs> he should know better. I, I, I tease, but really, yeah, yeah the three-way call. I, I, I remember watching him three weeks ago, or oh, it was maybe a month ago. He was on Kramer. Great interview. Loved him. I would. He just. He. No one brought up the three-way call. And it was killing me. I was like, that's all that's going <laughs> on here. That's all that's going on here. We can make it very simple. Um, but I love the fact bringing up Lynn Energy. The, I mean, it's really, you know, what I'm getting from your analysis, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it's just a, it's an M&A gone bad with unfortunately mm -hmm. bad timing due to oil price. Is that too simple? I think that's, I think that's generally the point. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously acquisitions are tough, right? And, and, if, you're, and if you're doing that at the wrong time, um, in the market, um, it's especially tough, but I think it's just too aggressive, right? Like you can't go out and acquire things and raise so much debt in a position where, you know, if, if the market moves in a significant way that you're just not gonna be able to recover. And I think that's kind of what happened on that one. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating case study. And yeah, Lynn Energy, it lend itself. I know, I, I, know, I know an owner who got laid off from Lynn Energy and started a, a company from that. So they, some good comes of things. But, uh, well, you know, before I let you go, yeah. is there anything in the energy finance M&A world that's bouncing around in your genius brain that you need to keep us updated with? Are we, any, are we not talking about something? What's anything we're missing here? I think it's going to be extremely interesting as it has been. But um, obviously with, all the OPEC actions and, and Trump tweets. I think now is a great time if you're not tuned into the energy space to um, give Michael Tanner's podcast a listen for sure, but also just stay up with energy news because I think there's going to be a lot to come as far as um, some bankruptcies for companies and um, exciting energy news um, in, in the space. So I think it should be exciting. Now, and if you, if you want to learn the most about energy finance, I suggest you create a Twitter account, follow hashtag ETF and hashtag OOTT. You'll learn everything you need to know. 
you'll learn everything you need to know. And there's probably about six, seven accounts you go. should be following. That's that, that. I would tell you to do that right now. That's the best way. Energy Finance Twitter is the best way to just get up to speed on what's happening right now. You're going to have to do a lot of back research to figure out. But once you get on board, woohoo, it's one of the best ways. I'll do a little shameless plug to ETF Twitter or EFT Twitter, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, EFT. Yeah, no, they're <laughs> and they're funny too. So it's good to, uh, Always uh, Everyone loves open a good it and ha- have it. Yeah, exactly. Well, good. Point of this segment: no three-way callers. We, you, we, you've been educated. <laughs> we can't. Any, if you are a subscriber yeah, of this you know, show and you get involved with three-way callers, I, I, yeah. I help you. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe Matt Gallagher, uh, Parsley COO, can come on and tell us otherwise. Um, I'm interested. But, uh, yeah, I think it's 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 a big it's a big risk. No, I'm about it. Um, and I'm just watching. Man, there's just so many news things dropping. It's unbelievable. I mean, we got four minutes ago before we went live on this this recording here. You know, Ryan Sutton's talking about he's speaking with the Russian energy minister. Texas is going to be willing to participate in a global coordinated effort to help the energy market. Like, <laughs> things are changing ever, so it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's uh, – <laughs> this is unprecedented, unprecedented times, and the market just can – you know, move, move so quick. So it's a, it, the global politics going on right now has a, is such a large pull on obviously, obviously the, the whole energy market. No doubt. And we are going to entrust you, Nick, to keep us informed about what's going on. So you better keep bringing your A game. You can find Nick if you want to connect with him either on Twitter at NickJBerry4 or you can find him on LinkedIn at NickBerry.com. So we really appreciate having him on the show. But now we got to get to Stephen. He's waiting on the line here. Remember, Stephen Barrow is the owner and operator of Patronus Energy, a petroleum midstream uh, energy consulting company that does everything within the midstream space. If you have a question on what to do on a midstream or the facility side, please call Stephen and Patronus Energy first. And Stephen, really what I want to bring you in today is because, you know, some of the topic that happened last week, and we talked about this on the Thursday show, and that has to do with storage. And we talked about it from a physical trading side, but really what I want to do is get your take on what the storage situation looks like for the midstream side of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, as you know, like, so oil and gas storage is a, a pretty straightforward part of, um, you know, the midstream business. And, and typically, it's pretty boring, right? It's just hydrocarbons are sitting there. <laughs> like I said, it's boring until it's not. And we're in a time right now where it is very much really exciting. <laughs> so uh, part of the reason that is because even though oil demand is diving, production numbers are still high. Um, and this situation has put oil futures, the oil futures curve into contango. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't know how many of the viewers or listeners know what contango is but basically uh, that's a situation that arises when investors are willing to pay more for a commodity at some future uh, point in time than uh-huh. for the current spot price so um yeah usually the premium above the current spot price uh, for a particular like commodity is related to the cost of carry Cool. And so give me, so give people the example of what like a, a cost to carry uh, yeah, price structure looks like. Sure. Yeah. Well, so generally this is um, including a cost to store the hydrocarbons plus any additional risk um, or transport. And so, um, you know, Cushing is this, you know, enormous uh, hub and storage area. There's a couple other big spots along the Gulf coast. And so if you're producing um, hydrocarbons close to those big storage areas, you know, your cost 
of storage plus transportation is relatively lower than you know say someone has to transport it from you know like a stranded asset um maybe, maybe the percentage that's due to storage is going to be the same but like it's going to be more expensive to get it there if you're far away right makes sense yeah no and it, it's it i mean that's what i thought the answer was but it just seems so simple yeah it's just how close you are to the storage you know what i mean it seems simple but it's but it's so true yeah and then you know probably most of the storage has long-term commitments like a lot of midstream assets uh, we, we talked about this in the last segment, which is like this infrastructure is built on long-term contracts. And so um, like a small percentage of the storage that's available is, you know, like short-term contracts. A lot of it is based on, you know, more stable long-term yeah. forecasts. Interesting. Well, cool. And so then I guess the other question I really had along this is some of the equity research that I read talks about effective tank tops and defining them as only about 85% um, capacity. Is that something that, you know, when you talk about how to find more storage, you know, market always finds somewhere to store the oil. Is that kind of what, when you, you talk about, there's always sort of someplace to take it or what's your take on finding more storage when, uh, when available? Yeah, um, I guess a couple of key points, right? It's like, you're going to, like the market always finds somewhere to store it, right? But like, if there's a glut of oil production in like West Texas, um, like surplus storage capacity, uh, like international doesn't help them much, right? Or like another mm -hmm. part of the country doesn't help them much. Like really, they, they, will, they can only really access like storage capacity, whatever small amounts like local there to West Texas or whatever is like directly connected to the coast via pipeline. Um, and so like you have to pay attention to those metrics, like where is excess capacity um, and, and is our pipeline that can get it there? Yeah, it makes, and it's, it's like, it, it almost, it sounds simple, but it's so true. It's just where are you located and where's the, I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. So you know, are there any companies you're watching that are, that, that are managing this situation um, effectively? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a good one to watch is Magellan Midstream Partners. Um, classic example. So they engage in the transportation, storage, and distribution of petroleum products. Um, last week, they indicated that this contango environment would represent an expected uplift of, you know, somewhere between 7 to $10 million in 2020 alone. Uh, so, I mean, those are compelling numbers. Um, and then they just have a solid management team. Like, so Alarian named Magellan, uh, their pick for 2020 is the most fiscally responsible midstream company. Mm -hmm. And they inducted their CEO, Michael Mears, into their Hall of Fame. So, I mean, hats off to Magellan, solid management team. Yes, no, solid, you know, we talk about this in the podcast all the time. Great companies always start with great management. And uh, so I really appreciate you bringing me up. Um, I want to talk for a second about some of the money backers in this and how they're doing. Um, can you give us an idea of how the, who the money backers are of some of these larger midstreams and how they're managing the situation? Oh yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, you got, you got companies like, um, you know, I, I speak to like private equity, like Riverstone, right? They back, Midstream companies like Kingfisher Midstream or Meritage Midstream, um, some other backers like Global Infrastructure Partners, they're, they're supporting projects with NLINK, um, like Freeport LNG, uh, Medallion Gathering and Processing, and then Hess Midstream. And now Hess is um, a good one to watch 
because you know they've been called the breakout midstream company of the year. Um, mm. Like we talked about in the last segment, how midstream has been somewhat insular to this commodity price um, due to minimum volume commitments. Uh-huh. Um, like I said, the greatest safety net for these midstream companies are their, their minimum volume commitments. And when you compare uh, MLPs or master limited partnerships or C-Corp midstream companies, has midstream uh, hands down leads the group with the percent of their revenues that are protected by a minimum volume commitment. Um, so if you look at their guidance, it's stated that they anticipate greater than 90% of their revenue protection in minimum volume commitment. So, um, you know, kudos to Hess, um, and I'm sure their their backer, global infrastructure partners, are happy about that position too. 100%. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're pumped about that. But that's no, that's something good to look for is talk about these minimum volume commitments and 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 you know the revenue protection and that's interesting. So before I let you go, is there anything that, that that's just stumbling around in your expert midstream mind that you think uh, we all need to be aware of? Is there something we're not paying attention to? What's what's what 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 keeps you what keeps you going? What's on your mind moving forward? Oh, I so I, you always want to follow projects, right? Um, that's a good indication of where the market um, is moving towards. So hey, storage is a hot topic right now. So Blueing Midstream, uh, they play in that space. The company phase two expansion just last year added 300,000 barrels of new liquid storage capacity. Um, so now total it's 1.1 million barrels overall. Uh, they've stated that they're going to move forward with, you know, a phase three of their bulk liquid terminal. And that's going to add, you know, another, you know, 1.2 million barrels of storage capacity. So um, that's one to watch as well. That's, uh, that's, no, that's very interesting. I like, I'm going to have to do some diving into that one. I absolutely love it. Well, I really appreciate Steven, you coming on and, and we're going to continue to keep looping you in and checking in and, and, and you need to, you know, keep us updated with what's going on in the midstream. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Great segment there by Steven to finish off. And, and I don't really have anything before we finish up here. I mean, please just subscribe www.oilandgas360.com to the digital closing bell. Obviously, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. More shameless plugs. Please check out all of our beautiful sponsors, Entercom, Oil & Gas 360, Sandstone Capital Group. We appreciate every single one of you. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys get back to work. Thank you for checking out the 360 digital closing bell. I will see you in the afternoon for the digital ticker.